From the silver screen to the printed page to the woods behind your house, incredible creatures are everywhere. For as long as I can remember, monsters have populated the landscape of my imagination. As a kid, I wanted to learn as much as I could about these legendary figures, and it turns out, I still do. I'm Mark Matsky, and this is Monster Study Group. Hello there, and welcome to another study session devoted to monsters in general and Japan's biggest monster in particular. This episode is inspired by our recent viewing of Godzilla 1985, a curious entry in the series that's perhaps most notable for the return of Raymond Burr to the role of Steve Martin, representing a 30-year gap between appearances. That kind of bent my brain. Not that Burr reprised the role, but the interval of time is what got my attention. In the movie, they kept referring to the events of Godzilla's first raid as occurring 30 years ago, which of course works out. 54 to 84 is 30 years. But that got me thinking. 30 years ago from today was 1993. And that does not seem very long ago at all. At the same time, it's a different world. I have no larger point to make than that, except maybe to marvel at the longevity of the Godzilla franchise and to reflect on the fact that in 1993, I was a junior in college and it was a big deal to have a hardwired telephone with voicemail in our dorm room. Anyway, Godzilla 1985 is today's subject, and I'm going to turn to the work of one of my favorite authors for insight on the production of this film, which you will hear in just a bit. Before that, though, some Godzilla news to report. G-Fest social media accounts recently announced that the first special guest is TJ Storm the motion capture actor for Godzilla in the Legendary Pictures releases. That should be a strong positive for the convention, which continues to grow in part on the strength of kids and families getting into Godzilla through his modern Hollywood incarnation. I'm of course interested to see who else will be announced, as well as the movies that will be screened and how that's going to work since the Pickwick Theater changed ownership since the last G-Fest. Whatever happens, we will be there, barring emergency. And it's a good feeling to have that on the horizon, less than five months away, as of this recording. Keeping with today's Godzilla theme, I'd like to spotlight a fairly new book that I received as a Christmas present called Kong, Godzilla, and the Living Earth, Gaian Environmentalism in Daikaiju Cinema 
by Alan Debus. Alan has written extensively for GFAN magazine and has numerous books available on Amazon, such as Paleoimagery, the Evolution of Dinosaurs in Art, Dinosaurs Ever Evolving, the Changing Face of Prehistoric Animals in Popular Culture, Dinosaur Memories, Volumes 1 and 2, and Prehistoric Monster Mash, Science Fictional Dinosaurs, Fossil Phenoms, Paleo Pioneers, Godzilla, and Other Kaiju Sores. Now, once upon a time, I was on a G-Fest panel with Alan, along with Mike Bogue, author of Apocalypse Then, American and Japanese Atomic Cinema, and had a memorable conversation with those two gentlemen the night before. By the way, Mike has a new book on the way called Shall We Play Global Thermonuclear War? An in-depth look at apocalyptic films of the 1980s. Full disclosure, I was a beta reader for Mike on this project. It's really well done. Also, pretty chilling considering the state of the world today. If we're all still around, that will be published by McFarland Books, as was Alan Debus's Kong, Godzilla, and the Living Earth. So, to close the circle, I'd like to share Mike's review of Alan's book as it appeared in GFAN, and I'll follow that up with some thoughts of my own. From GFAN issue 137, this is Mike Bogue's review of Kong, Godzilla, and the Living Earth. If you're hankering for a stuffy academic treatise that looks down its nose at you, scat. Alan Debus instead strikes a conversational tone with his fascinating examination of Godzilla and Kong's various iterations over the years, culminating with their monsterverse reimaginings as titans in league with Gaia, the living Earth. Debus provides a thorough look at Kong's evolution from the late 19th century to 2021, including, but not limited to, 1933's King Kong, in which the great ape established himself as a veteran monster fighter and an example of humankind's exploitation of nature. Jump to 2017's Kong Skull Island, where Debus points out that Kong now serves as Gaia's ecological defender of Skull Island, keeping the sinister underground skull crawlers from conquering the atoll and spreading worldwide. Similarly, Debus rigorously covers Godzilla's development from the 19th through the 21st centuries, emphasizing the famed Daikaiju's physical appearance. Of course, despite his dinosaur origins, Godzilla's 1954 movie presented not just another giant monster, but rather a walking incarnation of the bomb, a warning of the global peril into which nuclear weapons had plunged mankind. Yet, as Debus reports in Legendary's 21st century monsterverse, Godzilla has become a Gaian agent keeping his fellow titans in check. Debus notes that Godzilla's reach for Gaia is global, whereas Kong's is territorial, but the living Earth needs both to maintain balance. And, as Debus contends, both are destined to relive an ancient battle so potent 
It has branded itself upon humankind's genetic memory. While Debus emphasizes Godzilla and Kong's MonsterVerse roles, he doesn't skimp from covering the original 1962 King Kong vs. Godzilla and its 1963 Americanization. Indeed, for the 1962 original, he provides a monstrously detailed popcorn movie narrative of the two kaiju battles. Similarly, he provides color commentary for the spectacular double clashes, one aquatic, one urban, of Gaian age Kong and Godzilla in 2021's Godzilla vs. Kong, if not to mention their tag team trouncing of the villainous Mechagodzilla. In addition, Debus provides vigorous forays into what he calls paleo-apocalyptical dino-monsters, tracing their historical and pop culture iterations before, during, and after the 1950s. Fans of Godzilla's eco-years, mostly the 1970s, take note. Debus also skillfully and accessibly weaves commentary on Gaian theory into his prose. Perhaps best of all, Debus, a 60-something giant monster fan since childhood, sprinkles welcome nostalgia throughout. For example, he recounts his wide-eyed excitement at spying King Kong vs. Godzilla's 1963 newspaper ad. And after first having seen the movie, his diligent number two pencil recording of the film's major scenes in a document called King Kong vs. Godzilla Like It Was in the Movie. In addition to unabashed delight, Debus provides much food for thought, offering a variety of insightful analyses. If you are a fan of giant monster movies, or more specifically of Godzilla and Kong, Debus's tome beckons. Can you afford to disappoint your inner kaiju kid? Mike Bogue captures the feel of Alan Debus's book very well. The only thing I really have to add is that Alan has identified something here with the central premise of his book that helps add depth to the legendary monsterverse. While there may be a tendency to view the American-made Godzilla films strictly as tentpole blockbusters, which they are certainly designed to be, the fact remains that every story has underpinnings, Every story is informed by an underlying perspective, and Alan Debus has articulated the one that undergirds the legendary films. Now, it must be said, most people are not watching the MonsterVerse films that way. They're watching for fights and scenes of large-scale destruction. But the patterns and themes that Debus describes are indeed present, and being conscious of them can add a layer of understanding, even enjoyment, to one's viewing experience. It doesn't hurt that Debus is a winsome scribe and is of the generation that discovered Godzilla through a piecemeal process of discovery, a generation that I think I'm on the late end of and so can relate to his experience in that regard. All in all, Kong, Godzilla, and the Living Earth gets a strong recommendation from me as it's just the type of film analysis for which I'm always on the lookout. 
After this short break, the King of the Monsters meets Dr. Pepper in New World Pictures, Godzilla, 1985. We're very fortunate to have GFAN Magazine as a resource partner for Monster Study Group. GFAN is short for Godzilla Fan, and it was created in 1992 by Canadian educator J.D. Lees. Billing itself as the world's longest-running fanzine, GFAN features interviews with those who made and starred in classic Japanese special effects productions, in-depth analysis and behind-the-scenes reports, eye-popping artwork, collectible roundups, book reviews, information about G-Fest, and subscriber-exclusive inserts. Head on over to g-fan.com to learn more. That's g-fan.com. make sure we're all on level ground, unlike Godzilla at the end of this movie, here's a brief synopsis of the plot of Godzilla 1985. A reporter, Goro Maki, discovers the remains of a shipwreck off the coast of Tokyo. One survivor, Ken Okamura, explains that the ship encountered a giant monster that rose out of a volcano. The authorities have photos revealing that the monster is Godzilla, thought dead 30 years earlier. To avert panic, the Prime Minister orders a news blackout. Ken's editor censors the story, although Ken pursues the story anyway. He meets Professor Hayashida, whose parents were killed in Godzilla's 1954 attack, and who has spent 30 years studying Godzilla to understand the force that orphaned him. Ken's sister, Naoko, is Hayashida's assistant. Violating the government's gag order, Goro tells Naoko that her brother is alive. Godzilla, hungry for nuclear material, eats a Russian nuclear submarine. The Russians believe the Americans have bombed the sub, and the world braces for a third world war, a nuclear battle. Desperate to defuse the tensions, Japan's Prime Minister reveals that Godzilla destroyed the sub. The Soviets and Americans pressure the Japanese Prime Minister to allow them to attack Godzilla with nuclear missiles. The Prime Minister refuses. We will not make, possess, or allow nuclear weapons. We cannot make an exception. Godzilla comes ashore, still hungry, and eats the reactor core of a nuclear power plant. Hayashida and his assistants note Godzilla's behavior and develop a defensive strategy, construct a device to activate Godzilla's homing instincts and to lure him into the volcanic Mount Mihara, where they will trigger a controlled eruption to trap Godzilla. Their plan will not kill Godzilla, but it may save the world. 
The defense forces have a strategy of their own and plan to unveil an experimental flying fortress called Super X. Arming Super X with cadmium missiles, they hope to poison Godzilla's nuclear metabolism. The American military calls Steve Martin, the only American to survive Godzilla's 1954 attack. Martin's advice is simple. He doubts humans can do anything against the monster. As far as he is concerned, the matter is out of their hands. As the evacuation of Tokyo begins, Godzilla attacks the city. The self-defense forces unleash an awesome barrage, but Godzilla destroys everything in his path. The Russians, in a flagrant violation of their agreement, fire a nuclear missile from an orbital missile platform. As the Pentagon hurries to fire a counter-missile to intercept the Russian bomb above the stratosphere, Super X engages Godzilla in battle. During the conflict, Hayashida tests his device, and it works in attracting Godzilla's attention. Unfortunately, this causes Godzilla to attack the building housing Hayashida's lab. The defense forces manage to pull Godzilla away. A helicopter rescues Hayashida and the device, leaving Goro and Naoko to escape on their own. The cadmium missiles subdue Godzilla. His radioactive biology poisoned he topples to the ground helplessly. The American and Russian missiles collide in space and the resulting electromagnetic shock rocks Tokyo. The fallout revives Godzilla, now stronger and angrier than before, and the shock pulse cripples Super X. Godzilla crushes the flying tank under a building. Hayashida lures Godzilla to Mount Mihara where Minami detonates a volcanic eruption. Trapped in the lava, Godzilla screams in pain. Although Godzilla is now buried indefinitely underground, Tokyo will rebuild with the understanding that Godzilla will return someday. David Callett is the author of some excellent books, such as A Critical History and Filmography of Toho's Godzilla series, and Too Funny for Words, A Contrarian History of American Screen Comedy from Silent Slapstick to Screwball. He has also recorded some of my favorite audio commentaries, such as the ones that accompany Godzilla and Godzilla King of the Monsters for the Criterion Collection, Gamera vs. Giron for Aero Video, and Ghidra the Three-Headed Monster for Classic Media. He wrote the following article entitled Inside Story, The Americanization of Godzilla 1985, which originally appeared in G-Fan No. 20, March and April 1996. Godzilla, 1984, represented a radical about-face on the part of Toho, and started a new cycle of Godzilla films that would attract adult audiences 
with literate, politically charged scripts while maintaining child audiences with improved special effects. When New World Pictures released it in America as Godzilla 1985, however, they would undercut much of what the Japanese filmmakers had tried to do. The route Godzilla 1984 took to becoming Godzilla 1985 says much about the American film industry's attitude toward Godzilla and highlights some of the problems the most recent films have had in finding American distribution. After the dismal commercial performance of Terror of Mechagodzilla, Toho producer Tomiyuki Tanaka felt a hiatus for the series was necessary in order to get back on track. Bringing Godzilla back was still an imperative for Tanaka, however. The movies themselves had been good moneymakers for Toho. But even more importantly, the licensing of the monster's image for merchandising had turned into a $33 million a year industry. In 1980, Toho reissued Godzilla vs. The Thing, drawing surprisingly large crowds. In fact, nearly 3 million people attended, compared to 730,000 for a release 10 years earlier. No Godzilla film since Godzilla vs. The Sea Monster in 1966 had drawn such large crowds. Toho celebrated their 50th anniversary in 1982 with a film festival in which Godzilla films drew larger crowds than Toho's other films such as Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon and The Seven Samurai. An estimated 65 million people had seen Godzilla's movies, and some 200,000 of them belonged to one of several hundred Godzilla fan clubs. Of these, 10,000 formed a coalition called the Godzilla Resurrection Company, which gathered over 40,000 signatures on a petition demanding a new Godzilla movie. Most of the Showa series sequels had been attempts to recreate the success of King Kong vs. Godzilla. To that end, the Godzilla movies became light-hearted fantasies aimed at a family audience with a Godzilla that had become something of a superhero. This character change was responsible for his decline, Tanaka would admit later. It was a mistake. The fans didn't like Godzilla when he was good, agreed Toho spokesperson Masaru Yabe. Tanaka decided that the future of the series lay in returning to the darker style of the early allegorical Godzilla. While King Kong vs. Godzilla held the record for audience size, the 1954 Godzilla had a more attractive audience demographic makeup. In order to win back the adult viewers that had defected during the 70s, Tanaka decided to abandon the fantastical approach of the first series sequels. While Tanaka searched for the right project to bring his monster star back to the screen, an American filmmaker decided to develop an American version of Godzilla. In 1983, director Steve Miner, director of Friday the 13th Part 3D, hired screenwriter Fred Decker, writer and director of Night of the Creeps and The Monster Squad, to write Godzilla, King of the Monsters in 3D. The screenplay owes much to the never-made Warner Brothers film The Volcano Monsters and the British film Gorgo. Surprisingly, little influence came from the 15 extant Godzilla movies by Toho. 
In Fred Decker's script, a nuclear accident involving an orbital missile platform uncovers an enormous dead creature. The animal is a protosaur, a nuclear-powered ancestor of dinosaurs. Named Godzilla after a Japanese legend of a fire-breathing dragon, the creature turns out to be only a baby. A fully grown adult Godzilla destroys much of San Francisco searching for the baby, only to become further enraged upon discovering it to be dead. Experimental dragon missiles designed for use against nuclear weapons are used against Godzilla. As a nuclear-powered protosaur, Godzilla strongly resembles a living nuclear bomb, and a dragon missile fired down his throat appears to kill him. Miner employed artist William Stout to draw pre-production illustrations for the film. From Stout's illustrations, cartoonist Dave Stevens began work on the storyboards. Miner quickly found the support of the American special effects community. A special screening of the original Japanese Godzilla, subtitled in English, was arranged, an event that cultivated excitement and enthusiasm among the special effects team. Jim Danforth brought top stop-motion animation specialists to the screening. Rick Baker looked forward to developing a cable-controlled head, while David Allen headed the stop-motion animation team. Steve Cherkis built a three-foot stop-motion model of Godzilla based on William Stout's new Godzilla design, which more closely resembled a dinosaur than Toho's version, but kept the trademark dorsal plates. With approval from Toho, Miner began pursuing financing from Hollywood, using Stout's designs as promotional materials. Although producers like John Peters and Keith Barish showed some interest, the project never came to fruition. Hollywood believed Godzilla appealed essentially only to children and resisted spending $25 to $30 million on what would have been, in their opinion, a children's movie. In the end, Many elements of Decker's story later surfaced in Toho's 1984 Godzilla. Meanwhile, Tanaka drafted a story outline for the comeback film called The Return of Godzilla, introducing the idea that Godzilla needs to eat nuclear material and featuring a sequence in which Godzilla attacks a nuclear power plant. The story formed the basis for a screenplay written in 1984 by Shuichi Nagahara, Nagahara also borrowed elements from Decker's screenplay of Godzilla, King of the Monsters in 3D, namely the orbital missile platform, the Cold War tensions between the Soviets and the Americans, and the poisoning of Godzilla with anti-nuclear bombs fired down his throat. Ishiro Honda would have turned down a request by Tanaka to direct the new Godzilla. Honda felt very strongly that the series should have ended with the passing of his creator, saying, Godzilla died when Eiji Tsuburaya died. Honda also still smarted from the difficulties he had faced during Terror of Mechagodzilla, where his ideas were often overruled by Tanaka, and the script underwent numerous revisions while he was shooting. Furthermore, in the early 1980s, Honda had become involved in renewing the career of his longtime friend Akira Kurosawa, assisting the direction of Kurosawa's own comeback film, Kageshima. Tanaka's decision to hire the director of 1982's com commercial failure, Sayonara Jupiter, to helm the new Godzilla puzzled many. 
Koji Hashimoto lacked experience in kaiju ega, and Tanaka placed him in charge of what was to be one of Japan's most expensive productions. However, director Hashimoto approached his task with seriousness. In the first Godzilla movie in 1954, the message was against nuclear testing. This time, the theme is broader, the risk of nuclear energy in all its forms. This is the message I want to spread to the world through this film. The renewed emphasis on the nuclear theme was central to Tanaka's vision. Godzilla is the son of the atomic bomb. He is a nightmare created out of the darkness of the human soul, Tanaka said. He is the sacred beast of the apocalypse. The original Godzilla allowed Japanese filmmakers to discuss Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and the Bikini Island tests in a sort of code, using Godzilla as a symbol for ideas that were too painful to address directly. The 1984 Godzilla offered a similar opportunity. We wanted to show how easily a nuclear incident could occur today, but vivid images of nuclear war are taboo, explained Tanaka. Godzilla allowed Toho's creative team to comment on Japan's economic prosperity. After the traumatic devastations of the 1923 earthquake, the firebombings of Tokyo and the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Japanese people came to view their society's prosperity as fragile. Godzilla's attack on what Tanaka called the vain symbols of these abundant days pointedly demonstrated how easy it could be to undo that prosperity. Tanaka hoped to make the Japanese audiences experience such a crisis vicariously. Japan is rich, and people can buy whatever they want. But what is behind that wealth? Nothing very spiritual. Everyone's so concerned with the material, and then Godzilla rips it all apart. I suspect that is good for us to see. Toho spent the equivalent of $6 million in production on the new Godzilla. In addition to the production costs, Toho also spent $1.7 million in promotion. Taking a cue from the Americans' method of promoting movies through merchandising, Toho licensed a wide array of products from chewing gum to t-shirts. A special telephone number was set up for fans to call and hear Godzilla's trademark roar. Toho also produced a music video for the movie's strangely inappropriate theme song, I Was Afraid to Love You. As Godzilla's 30th anniversary film, and the first in nine years, the new Godzilla earned considerable international publicity. For the week of its December 15th opening, Godzilla drew 800,000 viewers across 234 theaters, Surpassing Ghostbusters and Gremlins in the highly competitive Christmas holiday run, Godzilla's eight-week run ultimately brought in 1.7 billion yen, $6.2 million, making it the second highest-grossing Japanese-produced feature of the year. However, pre-release publicity had boasted that Godzilla would rake in $12 million, double what it actually earned. Godzilla appeared in the United Kingdom with Toho's preferred international title, The Return of Godzilla, but it did not arrive in the United States until a year later. 
At first, Toho approached Hollywood with an asking price of $5 million. After meetings with Paramount and Universal, Toho spokesperson Kai Nagakawa announced the best offer Hollywood had made was a mere $2 million. For months, the impasse blocked any agreement. Underlying the negotiations were a variety of important factors. From Toho's standpoint, Godzilla's remarkable commercial success in Japan proved its worth. For such a demonstrably popular movie, Toho felt the $5 million asking price for foreign distribution rights was reasonable. Additionally, the Japanese film industry never faced the kind of antitrust legislation that had forced American movie studios to sell their theaters. In Japan, the film companies were vertically integrated. Toho was and is Japan's most powerful studio, owning 25% of all Japanese theaters, 36 of which stand in prime real estate in Tokyo, Osaka, and Nagoya. Toho's powerful grip on theaters is so vast that Toho makes an uncharacteristically high 64% of their total revenues from motion pictures while competitive studios like Nikatsu and Toei earn movies for less than half of their income. This vertical integration meant that most of Godzilla's 1.7 billion yen in box office receipts went directly to Toho. By contrast, the United States has frowned on such monopolies. Independent theater owners keep a large percentage of the box office gross before it is passed on to the distributor and producer. From Toho's standpoint, the commercial success of Godzilla movies in the United States put money in the pockets of Americans for more than it had returned profits to the Japanese producers. Toho's insistence on a high price for the distribution rights to Godzilla reflected their effort not to be cheated. Meanwhile, Hollywood companies approached the negotiations from a very different standpoint. Only two years earlier, Steve Miner had approached the same studios with his proposal for Godzilla, King of the Monsters in 3D. Were a major studio to have picked up Toho's Godzilla at the $5 million price tag, they would then have to pay for distribution expenses, namely prints and advertising. Hollywood studios generally spent close to $10 million on such expenses at the time, which would have brought the total bill up to $15 million, not much less than the amount they already decreed too high for an American-made Godzilla movie. Toho was not likely to find a sympathetic ear at the major Hollywood studios. Instead, their best chance lay with a smaller independent distributor with the ability to market movies to specialized audiences using less expensive promotional techniques than the major studios, burdened with high overhead costs Godzilla's past efforts had been distributed in North America by small independent companies like Embassy Pictures, AIP, and UPA. By the 1980s, both Embassy and AIP had closed shop. Meanwhile, an upstart distributor called New World struggled to establish itself. Roger Corman had started New World Pictures in the 1970s, selling it in 1983 to a pair of entertainment lawyers. When Lawrence Cuppin and Harry Evans Sloan bought New World, they reasoned that the market was ripe for new exploitation film distributor 
to take up the slack left by the passing of AIP and Embassy. Under Corman, New World earned annual profits between three and four million dollars in 1983 and barely broke even in 1984. Hoping to turn their fortunes around, Cuppen and Sloan hired film industry veteran Robert Rame as CEO. Under Rame, New World bid for Toho's Godzilla. Unaccustomed to spending even as much as a million dollars for the rights to the movies they distribute, New World balked at Toho's asking price. In the end, they purchased the North American distribution rights to Godzilla for only $500,000, far less than Toho had wanted, and only a quarter of what Hollywood had offered. New World got a bargain. The film, retitled Godzilla 1985 for American release, turned out to have many inexpensive routes for marketing. One of these was the 30th anniversary, which somehow managed to last three years. The true 30th anniversary occurred in 1984, 30 years after the Japanese release of Godzilla. Even though the American press had given considerable coverage to the Japanese anniversary the previous year, Godzilla 1985 rode a wave of publicity for the anniversary anyway. The publicity continued into 1986, the 30th anniversary of the American release of Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Some of the marketing overlapped Toho's efforts in Japan, including the music video and a promotional tour for the Saibot Godzilla. In a significant windfall for New World, Dr. Pepper had already signed an agreement with Toho and Henry Saperstein to use Godzilla in a television commercial campaign. The $10 million campaign had in fact already been negotiated before New World bought Godzilla 1985. New World's senior vice president of publicity and promotion, Rusty Citron, heard about the Dr. Pepper deal and flew to Dallas to meet with Dr. Pepper's executives. After a three-hour meeting, Dr. Pepper agreed to combine their advertising campaign with New World's marketing. In the end, Dr. Pepper financed New World's extensive reworking of the film, and in return, New World prominently featured Dr. Pepper. Television and radio commercials with the catchphrase, Out of the Ordinary, also promoted the movie. Additional promotional tie-ins were arranged with Konica Film, Hallmark Cards, and Scope Mouthwash. Citroen took pride in finding a cost-efficient approach to marketing each of the New World's releases. We are rediscovering the lost art of publicity, he declared. With publicity budgets 40% lower than other distributors, New World relied on Citroen and his eight-person staff to develop the kind of inexpensive, publicity-grabbing stunts that characterized the exploitation film distributors of the 50s and 60s. To this end, Citroen found what was to be perhaps his most fortuitous piece of the publicity next to the Dr. Pepper tie-in. Just as American distributor Joseph Levine had new scenes filmed with Raymond Burr as reporter Steve Martin to Americanize the original Godzilla, Citroen brought Burr back to reprise his role 30 years later. New World producer Anthony Randall hired screenwriter Lisa Tomei to rework the Japanese version and include new scenes with Burr and Dr. Pepper. Randall recognized the promotional value of Burr reprising his role 30 years later. It's a revitalization of 50s nostalgia 
That sort of Saturday matinee fun type of picture, Randall, found Burr eager to participate. He liked it, thought it had philosophical merit, and decided to take the part. They called me on the phone, Burr said. We have another picture. We're going to cut it the same way we did the first one. For the first one, I got paid a great deal of money for one day's work. The second one was also shot in one day, and I also got a great deal of money for that. But when they asked me to do it a second time, I said, certainly, and everybody thought I was out of my mind. But it wasn't the large sum of money. It was the fact that, first of all, I kind of liked Godzilla. And where do you get the opportunity to play yourself 30 years later? I wasn't bad in the second Godzilla. I wasn't good. I was just nothing in it. We didn't call him Steve Martin anymore. We call him Mr. Martin in the second picture because Steve Martin, the comedian, came up in between time. Raymond Burr's return provided a useful hook for the American press, and the newspaper coverage for Godzilla 1985 included detailed descriptions of the connections between the new film and the original. At the same time, Burr was also asked by NBC to reprise the role of Perry Mason for a made-for-TV movie. Press coverage for Perry Mason Returns also reported Burr's concurrent role in Godzilla 1985, thus providing New World with even more free publicity. The Americanized Godzilla 1985 changed the original in many significant respects. Although these changes created continuity errors where there were none, left plot elements unexplained, and reduced the logic of the story, some changes were dictated by the political climate. Many critics recognized the strong political statements inherent in the original. Reviewing the Japanese edition of Godzilla, Don Ritchie told the Reuters press service that poor little Japan is shown in the middle, the United States is on one side, the Soviet Union on the other, and both want to use Japan as a nuclear testing ground. It's all political status quo, a fable of Japan's present predicament. Tanaka believed the political allegory to be at the core of the film. The main difficulty is the control of nuclear weapons because man made them and controls them, and man can't be trusted. By depicting the Americans and the Soviets as moral equals, and the Japanese as principal victims caught in the crossfire, Toho's version was unlikely to find a sympathetic audience in Ronald Reagan's America. In order not to offend American patriotic sensibilities, New World altered the relative roles of the two Cold War superpowers. Changing the Russians into clear villains undermined much of Tanaka's intended subtext by presupposing that some parties could be counted on to be responsible with nuclear weapons and others could not. Although this alteration better conformed to Rambo-era American attitudes, New World's newly shot sequences undermined even that. The Pentagon officials who call in Mr. Martin come off as stupid and insensitive buffoons. Worst of the lot, Travis Sword's Major McDonough responds to footage of Godzilla's rampage with such remarks as, that's quite an urban renewal program they've got going on over there. Such juvenile retorts were the stuff of John Belushi's Godzilla vs. Megalon on NBC, or Comedy Central's Mystery Science Theater 3000. But to incorporate them directly into the film itself 
subverted the drama. New World lacked a single vision for their release. Much of the seriousness of the Japanese version remained alongside self-consciously campy scenes with joking Pentagon officials slurping Dr. Pepper. The trailer emphasized the campy aspects. In white letters printed on a black screen accompanied by the deep voice of a narrator, in 1956, he first appeared on motion picture screens across the country. His impact on audiences was instantaneous and unprecedented. His acting technique was revolutionary. His presence, overwhelming. He possessed more raw talent than any performer of his generation. He soon became an international legend, a giant who took the world by storm. Then suddenly, at the height of his fame, he retired from motion pictures. Now, he's back. And he's more magnificent, more glamorous, more devastating than ever, prepare yourself. The greatest star of all has returned. Godzilla, 1985. In theaters and on videotape, New World preceded the film with Marv Newland's extremely brief animated short, Bambi Meets Godzilla, a black-and-white cartoon from 1969 showing Godzilla's foot stomping on Bambi. By heavily promoting the film as a campy B-movie but keeping much of the film dead serious, New World set up unattainable audience expectations, and many felt the film was boring. In its North American theatrical run, Godzilla 1985 barely broke even. New World spent $3 million on the rights, new footage, and advertising. With all the serendipitous promotion from the 30th anniversary, the Dr. Pepper campaign, and NBC's Perry Mason returns, New World got more publicity than they paid for. When New World released Godzilla 1985 on home video in 1986, they again benefited from free publicity. In 1986, continued Perry Mason movies on NBC kept Godzilla 1985 in the papers connected to interviews with Raymond Burr. Even more helpful was the true American anniversary of Godzilla. Henry Saperstein planned to celebrate the event with a syndicated television special called The Best of Godzilla. Featuring clips from the various films, the special ending with Godzilla receiving a gold-plated award in the shape of a twisted molten skyscraper as a recognition for best monster actor. Saperstein also announced his intention to stage Godzilla retrospective film festivals at the New York Museum of Art, Washington's Kennedy Arts Center, Boston's Emerson College, Philadelphia's Theater of Living Arts, Chicago's Facets Multimedia, and several major universities. Sadly, neither of Saperstein's plans came to fruition. Dr. Pepper continued its Godzilla-based out-of-the-ordinary campaign, in introducing Newzilla, a love interest for the giant monster. New World's video release of Godzilla 1985 coincided with Paramount's video releases of Godzilla King of the Monsters, Godzilla vs. The Thing, Monster Zero, and terror of Mechagodzilla. In this climate of strong interest in Godzilla, the video version of Godzilla 1985 
brought $2 million in profits back to New World, a third of the company's profits for the entire year. Lee Isger, a security analyst at Payne Weber, commenting on New World's finances, reported, Godzilla was a grade B non-event in the theaters, but on cassettes it sold like grade A. Godzilla 1985 turned New World around, bringing the struggling company back to financial security. After the film's success on home video, New World's stock doubled in value. However, with all the free publicity, New World only realized meaningful profits on the video release. Without the benefit of so much related promotion, future Godzilla movies would be unlikely to be as successful. For the long run, several bad precedents had been set. The clumsy Americanization of Godzilla 1985 invited a severe thrashing from movie critics. Tom Shales felt the comic trailer was more entertaining than the picture and complained, one can laugh at the bad dubbing of Japanese actors for just so long before the jokiness pales. Rick Kogan, film critic for the Chicago Tribune, found it heavily laden with anti-nuclear messages, bad dubbing, and worse dialogue. Playboy's Bruce Williamson wrote of the god-awful Godzilla 1985 that the monster that mauls Tokyo this time around still resembles a large pile of plastic guano, and the Japanese-to-English dubbing is so out of sync and ludicrous that I half expected an end credit giving a nod of acknowledgement to Woody Allen. Especially galling to longtime Godzilla fans in the West, much of the critics' criticisms of Godzilla 1985 pertain only to the New World version. The distinction, however, was too subtle for most reviewers to make. Many sources claim New World had actually produced Godzilla 1985 themselves. Others believed Toho had shot the scenes with Raymond Burr out of fear that Americans could not relate to an all-Japanese cast. The Detroit News' Peter Ross even asserted that the dubbing was intentionally bad. Dubbing invariably results in low-quality, out-of-sync dialogue, despite the superiority of subtitles many Americans refuse to attend subtitled movies. In fact, as part of Toho's 50th anniversary celebrations in 1982, a subtitled, unedited print of the original 1954 Godzilla minus Burr played at the Joseph Papp Public Theater in Manhattan and the Hirschhorn Museum in Washington, D.C., along with several classics by Akira Kurosawa in subtitled form. This oft-ridiculed monster movie received the same positive critical treatment as an art movie. The sequel, Godzilla vs. Biollante, returned only a slim profit to Toho. Despite New World's success with Godzilla 1985, the American film industry did not see the new Godzilla film as a worthwhile risk. Godzilla 1985 had benefited from an extensive amount of free publicity. In the end, though, New World only made a profit in video release, and the profit was small compared to their expenses. Toho had pointed to Godzilla's Japanese success as proof it would do well in international release. Godzilla vs. Biollante performed less well at the Japanese box office than Godzilla, suggesting, by the same logic, that its American audience would be similarly smaller. 
since any distri distributor that picked up Biollante would be faced with more advertising costs than Godzilla 1985, but a smaller audience, economics argued against the deal. In America, Godzilla had been firmly entrenched as a campy star of low-grade movies aimed at an exploitation audience. Ironically, Toho, meanwhile, aggressively revamped the series into a mature, highly political one aimed at adults. The two markets had started to diverge, and with Godzilla vs. Biollante would split apart completely. The Heisei Godzilla series would continue, but without an American theater audience. As for my thoughts on Godzilla 1985, they haven't changed a whole lot since I first saw the movie during my seventh grade year. I remember being underwhelmed then, and for the most part remained so. Stuck in the uncomfortable position of wanting to like it more than I actually do. The underwhelm is largely a result of Godzilla himself in this picture. This is not my favorite suit design. One of my least favorite, actually. The Cybot stuff tends to look stiff and obviously animatronic in a not good Chuck E. Cheese sort of way that is distracting. Nor am I sold on the Bird Sounds storyline as a way of manipulating the big G. Having said that, there are many things I like, such as the horrific prologue on board the ghost ship, some of the shots during Godzilla's battle with the Super X vehicle are undeniably impressive. And all of the punched-in American scenes ride a thin edge between parody and camp. Raymond Burr is given very little to do except to say that there is very little to do against Godzilla. It's an easy movie to riff in Mystery Science Theater fashion. I have mixed feelings saying that about a Godzilla film. In the end, you're either entertained by a movie or you're not. And I enjoy Godzilla 1985 and would gladly watch it again, especially in the right company. I will also say this. The premise of Godzilla 1985 is that Godzilla never appeared between 1954 and 1985. I'm grateful that is not actually the case. Well, that does it for this session of Monster Study Group. Thank you for participating. You can put your pencils down. Special thanks goes out to J.D. Lees for permission to use today's articles from GFAN Magazine, and also to Andy for watching Godzilla 1985 with me. I'll leave you with these words from ace reporter Steve Martin. For now, Godzilla, that strangely innocent and tragic monster, has gone to Earth. Whether he returns or not, or is never seen again by human eyes, 
the things he has taught us remain. Thank you.